Hi, everybody. Um, before we get to our traditional intro, we wanted to repeat something we said at the end of the last episode, given some unfortunate recent news related to our subject for today's episode, Regina King. Um, we just wanted to reiterate uh, that uh, we send a lot of condolences and a respectful rest in peace to her son, Ian Alexander Jr., who uh, passed away due to suicide uh, last week. It was a terrible, awful bit of news that we heard, and we didn't want to make it seem also like we were trying to piggyback on tragedy at all. We really respect Regina King's talents as a performer and as a director, as we're going to go into in this episode. Um, so we just wanted to really extend our condolences and also really reach out to the fact that if you're having suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. It's a really valuable resource. And um, we hope that all of you are doing, you know, as well as you can in the middle of a pretty upsetting world that it can be at times. But uh, now on to the episode. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the Double-Edged Devil Bill. This week, Regina King is down to earth for one night in Miami. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Nerani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. When we'll have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and I, too, am disgusted by the lack of variety in ice cream selection in my refrigerator. Only vanilla? I can't believe it. And I am Adam Thomas, and a good hot dog makes me stop, drop, Shut them down and open up shop. Oh, oh boy. Do you have a, the soul of a black person inside of you and you're dancing around in front of a hot dog shop? Is that what's happening right now? No, I, I'm probably the whitest person anybody's ever seen in their life. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the Double-Edged Devil Bill, where uh, every week Adam and I uh, pick a good and a bad feature and talk about both those movies related to a topic we decided to cover. And, you know, it's uh, February. This is February 1st. So uh, we like to always leave spotlight one black artist to some degree, either a director or an actor, in this case, an actress, because uh, we are celebrating for this particular episode, Regina King, uh, who is a great character actress. I loved seeing in so many things. The first thing most would know her from was probably like A Boys in the Hood. Um, that was her first film role, though she'd been acting in TV and stuff. Like she was on 227 back when that was a thing, um, amongst other things like that. Uh, what was the first time you saw her in a movie or something, Adam? Well, I mean, I know I saw Boys in the Hood before I saw the one I'm about to say, but I just, the first thing I remember seeing her in is uh, the first Friday movie, mm -hmm. for sure. Yes, uh, as uh, Ice Cube's sister, she was uh, quite fun in that. Yeah, I had to sleep with her head propped up because she's got her weave in. So funny. <laughs> um, I mean, I would probably say similarly, A Boys in the Hood or Friday was probably the first thing I saw her in, but one of those situations where I didn't know she was performing as both these characters in this particular TV show, but the first thing I at least fell in love with her related to her performances was as both Huey and Riley Freeman in The Boondocks, the animated show, which blew my mind when I found out about that. Like, oh my God, she's both of them. Because they feel like such different characters. Obviously, that's part of the like gimmick of that show. But it's so fascinating, especially finding out like she auditioned and got the role of Riley first, and they kept searching for a Huey because he's like the main character of that show, only for her to be like, well, I, I could do it. And she just went back and forth as those two characters. And it's really astonishing, especially for someone who's not like a trained voice actor to do that. Uh, and it's it's so funny on that. Particularly, like, there's a, a one episode where the two of them are, like, alone in the house together, and they just terrorize each other and destroy the house throughout the whole weekend. And it's such a funny back and forth. I have not seen a single episode of that show. Oh, interesting. I've heard nothing but good things about it. I just haven't gotten around to watching it well but uh what what do you think of regina king as an actress adam what makes her sort of stick out especially you know and admittingly it's unfortunately 
too like hard for like black actresses to like get many jobs that like really distinguish them out in Hollywood just because it's fucking shitty for a lot of people, especially women, especially women of color. What do you think makes her stick out, especially that's made her like last for so long as a great character actress? Well, I mean, for one, the one thing, you can just see the growth in her her acting ability. I mean, you mean which I mean, yeah, she was good and fun in Friday, but then when you get up to you know Oscar winning performances and you know Watchmen and things like that, it's just. She's just grown exponentially as an artist, but yet, you know, acting, writing, directing, whatever you want to call it. But I think the, the big thing about Regina King, which I, which really appeals to me, is she has such a sense of power behind her, whether it's vocal range or just looks she can do or something. There's just something about her that just commands the screen anytime she's on it and demands your attention. Yeah, I think there's a real conviction to all of her performances that you talk about with like the growth of her characters. Like in the earlier things like Boys in the Hood or Friday, there's like obviously an immaturity, but at the same time, there's a complete conviction about like, oh no, these are fully realized characters that she's playing all those things. So when it progresses to the point of being like authority figures, or at least people with a bit more of like experience on their belts uh, it really shows off as it goes along all the way down to like you know if Beale Street can talk the maturity has like continued but at the same time the conviction's always been consistent yeah no I definitely agree she even in you know some movies we might be talking about tonight or some that might be brought up in our in our redo section I I don't think she's ever not committed to the performance it's just sometimes the the role doesn't deserve somebody as good as her. Yeah, sort of that period post her breakout, but before her big sort of like Oscar and acclaim and stuff like that. There was definitely a mid-period where she's just like, oh, you're a love interest or you're like the supportive black friend, unfortunately. You know, she gets pigeonholed into those kind of things as many black actresses do. But at the same time, she's able to really stand out and really just have a full three dimension to any character that she plays should be regina queen huh <laughs> oh, oh oh yes queen we're, we're going back to like 2016 yeah. internet sure we'll yeah. do that um, <laughs> but we should get to uh, the two movies that we picked at the end of our last episode and we'll be picking some more for next week so at the end of this one so stay tuned for that uh, but for this one we are covering uh initially your bad pick which we ended up with down to earth and then uh, My Good Pick, which is a movie she's not in, but she did direct as her theatrical feature film debut, uh, One Night in Miami, which I think is interesting. I don't think we've ever done this where we've covered an actor, and one of the choices was one that they directed but weren't even in. I mean, dude, I don't know. It's almost 200 fucking episodes. I, I don't know what we did yesterday. <laughs> you know, I mean. Good point. Fair point. Uh, but, you know, let's go ahead and get into our first feature then with Down to Earth. Comedian Lance Barton had a lot of potential, but the one thing he needed to work on was his timing. Well, what is this place? This is heaven. Heaven. Well, I hate to break it to you, but you're not dreaming. But I'm not dead. I took him one-tenth of a second before the truck hit. You killed me! Did this hurt? You could have been a vegetable. I like vegetables! Your body's gone. But we can put you in another person's body as long as no one knows he's dead yet. Who lives here? Charles Wellington, 15 richest man in America. Well, I can't go to the Apollo in that body. How am I supposed to get laughs looking like him? Come on, he looks funny to me. Chris Ross. I don't know what got into that Wellington, but I like it. In the ultimate out-of-body experience, down to earth. Can I get a table dance? Shake it up, shake it up. Yeah! Shake that thing. So, Down to Earth came out in um, February 16th, 2001, uh, and is mainly known as a Chris Rock vehicle. One of those, uh, that illustrious time when Hollywood was like, let's make him an actor and give him vehicles where he'll be the main character. Always a great sign. Always a great thing to do. But uh, this is interesting, at least, because it's also a remake of what I thought was initially just the film from 1978, Heaven Can Wait. But doing research for this episode, I found out, one, that was a play originally, like, in the 30s, and they made a movie in 1941 called Here Comes Mr. Jordan, which is just some random fucking 40s title they came up with. It was originally called Heaven Can Wait as a play. Um, But the title for this movie actually comes from the sequel to uh, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, which was called Down to Earth, which ended up being the basis for a remake that would later come out called Xanadu. 
the premise of Xanadu of like the Greek goddess who like comes down and falls in love with a guy and performs and shit like that was done originally in the 40s and then became like this roller skate Olivia Newton-John infamous bomb which is what I'm saying here is uh, this movie could have used a lot more ELO in roller skating a lot more a ton more right because <laughs> <laughs> so there's none <laughs> I could have used it I, I guess I'll, I'll go to a brief synopsis for anybody who might be curious what it is Chris Rock plays a sort of struggling comedian who's really trying to make it big. One night after a gig, he's on his bike and he sees Regina King's character and he gets distracted and gets hit by a bus and dies. Well, it turns out that the angel that took him took him too early. He wasn't supposed to die from the bus crash, but his body's dead. So they have to find him a new body. Well, (laughs) it has to be the body of somebody who's recently died. And (laughs) they put him in the body of an old fat white man who's super rich and is like, you know, defunding hospitals in the inner city and, and things like that. So, oh, big hijinks ensue. And the whole thing is he wants to get Regina King to fall in love with him while he's in this body because he's so in love with her and shenanigans, shenanigans, shenanigans. Right. And obviously, like, that basic premise has been the same from, like, the Here Comes Mr. Jordan and the 78 movie and all that. The difference here being, obviously, that it's a black man who has died and it gets into the soul of a white man, which, to be fair, I don't think is a bad idea for a new take on this idea. Because, like, there's a lot you can do with that whole, like, oh, there's a class thing that was already there in the text, but then we're adding a racial element. There's something you could really do with that. Um, and the movie, we're, it's it's this weird thing where, like, it kind of wants to broach that just in more of, like, the broad comedy way. But it also <clears throat> wants to be the same kind of, like, fantasy romance movie the original source material is at the same time. And I don't think it knows how to quite level those two out. Uh, I think that's that's absolutely accurate. And also... Um, the comedy that it sort of goes for feels like the lowest hanging fruit, like the easiest jokes you can make in this situation. Let's have him rap along to a song and say the N-word, and let's have all of a sudden him teach his stuffed shirt white butlers and maids and his ex his estranged wife or whatever. Let's get them all, you know, into hip hop slang and things like that. It just feels like they're taking the easy road where you really could do something funny yet poignant, but it, it, they just go for the simplest of jokes to me. They go the rap and granny route, basically. Is what yeah, they really like, do. Where it's just like, oh, it's funny that we're seeing this character who is a black man in the body of a white person. Like, they do that joke way too much of seeing, like, whoever the actor is that's playing the actual, the white guy from their outside perspective. And it's just like, oh, look at him. Like, if you did that joke once, like, I think if you did it, like, when he's in the limo or the car with, like, Mark Addy and they're doing, like, the yeah. uh, West Side symbols, that's the one time we're like, okay, you can do it once and then that's fine. But they keep going back to that well. And it's a well that didn't have a lot of water in it from the start. No, not at all. And then, hey, let's put Jennifer Coolidge in like rap girl clothes from a video and have her talk of, you know, dog and my ass and all that. Okay. All right. This is yeah. dumb. Right. <laughs> it's really dumb. And I mean, obviously, the big thing is, as we mentioned, this is a Chris Rock vehicle. He also co wrote the script with a few people who had worked on his show, The Chris Rock Show, and would also go on to do other things. Like, there's Lance Carruther, who, of course, is Pootie Tang himself from the movie Pootie Tang. Ollie LaRoe, who would later go on to co-create the Everybody Hates Chris show with Chris Rock, of course. And then also Louis C.K. is a credited writer on the script. Yeah, who directed Pootie Tang. Let's not forget that. Right. They were buddies. Hopefully were. I don't know if they still are buddies. I would hope they wouldn't be. <laughs> but but anyway, anyway, just back to like the Chris Rock of it all. Like this was at a time where Chris Rock was given a bunch of vehicles to like kind of do his thing. Where it's just like, hey, do your stand-up basically, but as a main character in a movie. And that works if you're having him do that maybe in a supporting capacity, like in a dogma. I think it works fine in that movie. That he can't really act, but he just sort of acts as himself, and he's had other things. But when you give him, like, the leading spotlight, it just... He doesn't have any kind of natural charisma on screen. He can just do his stand-up, which is fun, but is also, like, inherently mechanical. If you ever watch a Chris Rock stand-up routine, it's constantly, like, the exact same setup of, I'm gonna say the premise of my routine at the start of the routine, go on my elaborate routine in my Chris Rock way, and then repeat it 
at the end of the routine. And he kind of yep. does that as a human yep. being in this movie, which is just awkward. Yeah, it's pretty bad, dude. Like, like I think you said it pretty, pretty well. He's so devoid of charisma. And the thing is, yes, they're trying to do this supernatural fantasy sort of romance thing. Not once do you buy it between him and Regina King. I mean, at all. Granted, the thing is, it's really not him. It's supposed to be the old white guy, but that's not what you're seeing. You're seeing him and Regina King. The thing that would make that work is that, okay, you see that she's dating, like, this older, like, white guy, this rich white guy, who goes against not just, like, obviously, like, oh my god, like, I totally have her age reigns and all this other stuff, but also, on a principal level, like, she's trying to make sure the hospital keeps getting funded, and he's the evil rich man who's suddenly turned a new leaf and is coming onto her. The whole thing should be, oh, Chris Rock's spirit within this guy is what makes her look past that exterior to fall in love with the guy who's inside. And when you have Chris Rock, who I think has a charisma as a stand-up, but not really as an actor, uh, that's really impossible to believe. Yeah, 100%. Then they just populate the movie with annoying sort of characters. Like, I, I like Jennifer Coolidge. I like Mark Addy. I like a lot of these guys. But they're just the dumbest sort of one note characters like even wanda sykes i love wanda sykes but come on it's just it none of it works it all falls so flat for me i would argue i think initially with a lot of those characters it's fun i think particularly like when mark addy is initially revealed to not be a british butler but a dude from michigan and him and chris rock just hang out i think is one of the funnier moments yeah or, no that's a, fine no, a, a lot of wanda sykes's earlier stuff i think is fun it's just that it, those jokes also get tired as the movie goes along, uh-huh. they don't have much for them to do after a certain point. No, not at all. They just become one note fucking cliche characters. Like they just keep repeating the same thing formula, rinse, reuse, repeat. And it's just, it's nonstop to where it becomes grading. So you're left trying to, at least for me, you're left trying to get involved or have any kind of emotional tether to the Chris Rock, Regina King situation. And I just don't. I just. I just don't. I, I, you know, I agree with you. Chris Rock is very charismatic as a stand-up when he does interviews. Uh, he's decent when he hosts Saturday Night Live. It's just Chris Rock is just a terrible actor. I'm just going to say what it is. He, he's just. It comes across like you said, too robotic, too wooden, too like. Okay, stand here, say this line into camera, and it's just there's not really anything behind it. What this all stemmed from, apparently, was the idea that when uh, Warren Beatty was going to do the 78 movie, or at least the original version of that 78 movie, was they were trying to court Muhammad Ali, which is a weird connection between our two movies, um, <laughs> to be like the lead character. Um, and he was like, you know what, that would have been so great, especially at that time, if you had cast like a Richard Pryor in that role. And Richard Pryor is the exact kind of person who should have starred in this movie circa, like, 1979 or 80. Because yes. he would, because even, like, that's a dude who was known for, obviously, his stand-up persona, which he put onto his films. But at the same time, there was a real humanity you could see out of Richard Pryor to where, like, when someone's stuck in these kind of situations, you could believe, like, say, a person like a Regina King would fall in love with that guy. And even inside, like, an old white man's body and stuff like that. Rock is just, like, so wooden and awkward to even when, like... They have to do all this, like, reaching around to the, be the idea of, like, oh, look, he's um, a failed stand-up who can't do anything. When he goes out, he's doing, like, the lamest things to where, like, the Apollo Theater would not have this guy on based on these routines. They have to screen these people. <laughs> they don't, like, just let anybody off the street if it's amateur night. They don't let anybody just come up for that kind of shit. And him just doing his awful stuff about just, like, um, the black box and all this other stuff. It's the weirdest kind of, like poorest attempt to make us believe he's not funny to the point where like anytime he's like struggling or when he eventually rises to success as a stand-up i'm just like i don't really believe this progression because all of a sudden he goes from terrible stand-up comedian who should not be on a stage to a lesser version of a chris rock stand-up which is still funnier than that guy i don't believe whatever progression you're trying to sell me with that no, not, I mean, not at all. He just doesn't have, like I said, he doesn't have the gravitas. He doesn't have the, the sort of skill. Like, again, he's just so unbelievable to me as a lead. You know, I, I, I'm just trying to feed you. What? What are you talking about? Why? why? Huh? <laughs> it's just so, I will say, for some reason, the two characters I get the most fun out of this movie and it's, I don't know why, because it's really silly, but Eugene Levy and Chaz Palmentry, I think, are actually having kind of fun in this movie. Um, I mean, I would say that 
maybe more with Chaz Palminteri, even though he's, like, sleepwalking through this movie. I don't get much fun out of him as much as, like, a paycheck real vibe out of that dude. Um, but especially Gene Levy, it's just him doing, like, the thing that was, like, so prominent, like, the turn of the new millennium. Obviously, this is, weirdly, this is the follow-up for the, the Chris and Paul Whites, who are the directors here from uh, American Pie which they had previously directed with Eugene Levy, obviously, in it. And that movie really kickstarted a whole new, like, phase of that dude's career where he's just, like, befuddled white guy, which w- they would especially try and contrast, like, oh, he's saying, like, things that are, like, he would have caught on BET. Oh, how funny is that? Like, this is not too long before the infamously bringing down the house, the Steve Martin movie, where he's doing shit like, you got me straight tripping, boo which is, like, the trailer line of that movie. And, like, this is, like, the uh, earliest point of that, where it's just a lot, like, he, the whole thing where he says, like, yeah. I had to listen to Mystical and all these other people. It's just, like, look, he's, like, a middle-aged Jewish white man. He's saying all these things. Isn't it funny? It's just, like, I mean, it can only be so funny. I love Eugene Levy, but... Yeah, I think this, that's my problem with it. I just really like Eugene Levy. So I'm always like, eh, give him a break. Look, he got plenty of breaks. He got a whole series of American Pie spinoff movies to feed himself off of. He got plenty of breaks. Yeah, yeah he's fine. <laughs> but uh, I don't even get heart out of this movie. Like, there's nothing about it that makes me go, oh, well, that was cute. Or, oh, that, you know, okay, I see where they're going. I just feel like it's just this soulless, stupid, low-grade comedy. It's like nails on a chalkboard for me watching him perform. What is something you take away from this that you're like... Oh, that was pretty good. Um, I think it's a lot of, like I said, the earlier stuff where they're sort of establishing the relationships between, like, Chris Rock coming into this body with, like, you know, Mark Addy or Wanda Sykes. I think initially, like I said, a lot of that stuff really works out for me. It's really, like, when they have to have him go back to being, like, a stand-up that I really start losing any kind of interest in this movie to a certain degree. Like, I don't even think the setup is that terrible, like him and his relationship with Frankie Faison, who I think is, like, doing also the best he can in this movie, and I think has a bit of that heart in terms of just, like, look, I believe in you, kid, even though you're very much like Frankie. What what do you believe in him about? <laughs> what's what's there to believe in? What, what religion are you praying to if you have belief in this guy being anything of a stand-up, based on what we've seen earlier? Um, I, I just think, like, some of that stuff I think is interesting in the setup, the first act of the movie. I I just think after that point it kind of sputters and even we should say regina king obviously is our subject for the episode another um, great example of like what you talked about earlier where she is trying so hard to make this work as best as she can um with all the constraints around her and i don't think there's any fault with her and particularly her reactions to his statements particularly like when she's trying to like romance her a bit with like the oh let me get the handcuff key that you put yourself onto my table with and she's just like i you know i lost the key or whatever but fine i'm, I'm not going to keep this conversation over the meeting's over and all this other stuff i think she has a lot of conviction that once again the movie does not earn mm-hmm. i think she's really trying i mean this is well this has got to be one of her first major like second lead roles to where she's definitely the second lead in this movie and just nobody else is on her level i feel like she is definitely carrying the weight of the whole movie and it sucks because it it almost brings down her performance with how bad everyone else is i think it just makes her effort feel a bit like lost cause-ish i guess as it were yeah no yeah yeah yeah, and, and I think that it doesn't also help that sort of, I, I talked about the Weitz Brothers' direction. So many examples here of like a, a studio comedy kind of thing where it feels like they don't have much uh, authorial intent as were, which to be fair, maybe they shouldn't because they're two white guys who shouldn't do this. Perhaps they shouldn't have been the directors yeah, yeah. to do this, maybe. Um, but at the same time, like they, there's so many instances in this movie where just on a filmmaking craft level, some of the worst ADR I've seen in a professional studio movie. Of all time to try and What are you talking about? Like during the big emotional scene where Chris Rock's character has been assassinated inside of the white guy's body, they have like him and Chaz Palminteri and Eugene Levy with their he- mouths completely hidden as like the camera's like zooming upward and just like, you gotta let me back in the body. You have to. I'm sorry. He's been killed. It's too late. And then they like zoom past and it's like the worst ADR. <laughs> or even a bit where they try and get Frankie Faison to come up to his apartment and they just have ADR just like hey why don't you look up um, this guy who was my former agent or whatever why don't you bring him up here and it's such bad ADR not only is it bad ADR because it, it, it definitely is I know exactly the scene you're talking about but also when they show him as the white guy 
he's talking or whatever, and it's like Chris Rock's voice. That also, I think, was a mistake. It should have just been that actor's voice because it looks so phony. Like, it's not even synced up properly. And also, we get the point. Like, we get it's Chris Rock inside this guy's body. You don't need to remind us every five seconds that, oh, it's actually Chris Rock in there. Especially when Heaven Can Wait was a very popular movie, and the premise isn't that hard to grasp, really. Like, you already have, like, Chaz Palmatier explain all this shit already, and, like, the one shot of, like, Chris Rock walking around when he's, like, the white guy and all that. You can establish that very firmly early on. It's just this well of the same exact kind of humor that once he's going back to. It's also, like, very much a PG-13 movie. And, like, if you had maybe allowed Chris Rock to go full R-rated with it, I think that might have made it at least a bit more biting. Because there's a really good satiric idea in here of, like, an old white man who's, like, super rich becomes a very popular stand-up comedian using, like, the vernacular of a black man because he is a black man inside. It's, like, literally the same voice. There's, like, commentary you can have about, like, a white person taking on, like, appropriating a culture and all this other stuff and the conflict that they would have with the Chris Rock character to some degree about that. But the movie's not interested at all in that. And it's interesting no. in these, like, really lame jokes that you're talking about. Yeah, that, exactly. That's that's what I was getting at to begin with. If they really tried and, and like I said, made a thing about cultural appropriation or or whatever it is, it would have really, really worked instead of him rapping along to DMX and getting punched out. There's so much potential in here to not only be funny and do a fish out of water sort of story, but really sort of pound home some kind of a message. And they don't even try. They don't even try at all. Like I said, it's white people, you know, rapping grannies, like you put it, and, and then and then a shitty love story that's unbelievable. Like it, it's just, it's such a half-hearted attempt at me to to literally just make a Chris Rock vehicle. Like that was the whole goal. There wasn't any to me any sort of really care put behind of making sure this works. It was more or less: is Chris Rock in it? Is this something he agrees to do? Oh, he wants to be involved. Great. Then we're doing it. We're putting it out. I mean, Adam, those are like pretty good final thoughts. Unless you have anything else to add, uh, fuck this movie. I, I like, I, I. It's not one of the worst movies ever, but it's definitely a, a very infuriating movie. Um, I don't know if infuriating really is like the best term even for me because it just feels it's so lifeless. Like what I would categorize this movie as is basically like it's a it's playing on Comedy Central in the middle of an afternoon movie. And that you would watch it if you had nothing else to do back in the day before internet was so, like, constant in our lives. And you'd be like, oh, okay, I saw that, and then really forget about it. Which is a bummer with, like, a premise that I think has a lot of potential when you especially have this new element in there. And as it stands, it just ends up, like we mentioned, being a Chris Rock vehicle. A person who has a lot of charisma in a different art form, but not in film, specifically acting. And it's and the most interesting thing about this movie is just it's part of the weird Whites Brothers career, which I really want to mention. Like, both these guys started with American Pie. But here are some other movies on either of their resumes after this. They both collaborate on About a Boy after this, but also The Golden Compass, Twilight New Moon. Uh, they both have writing credits on Night Professor 2, The Clumps, uh, Rogue One, The Star Wars Story, um, the Cirque du Freak movie. Just weird filmography. And this is just a part of it, as opposed to anything really that interesting. Yeah. Yeah, those guys have done weird-ass shit. Yes, very weird careers. Uh, but let's move on to a different directorial career that doesn't have as much under their belt uh, with Regina King, but uh, they will soon hopefully flourish uh, after a one night in Miami. Ready for tonight? I'm as ready as a person can be. After the fight, we're all coming back here for the champs victory party. Don't be late. Minister Malcolm X. Good news, the chariot is coming. Jim Brown takes the ball. Your record is going to stand the test of time. How's everybody feeling tonight? All together, yeah. <laughs> New heavyweight champion of the world. Oh, yeah, that's the show. Don't you think it's about time to party? Tonight is a chance for us to reflect. Well, this is all to a hopping start. Listen, listen. Brothers and sisters, listen, listen, listen. The goal is for us to really be free. Move the great! Your brothers could move mountains without lifting a finger.
So, One Night in Miami came out uh, December 25th, 2020. Um, that was at least its initial theatrical release, but it was eventually on Amazon Prime um, in January of 2021. And as I mentioned, it was Regina King's directorial debut, um, at least in terms of like a theatrical film. Um, she had directed several episodes of TV before this in a TV movie, but uh, this was her first outing with like a feature film that especially got some Oscar attention, not for her, uh, but for a best adapted screenplay from Kemp Powers, who was also very popular that Oscar season for co-directing Soul, the Pixar movie, um, but also uh, Best Supporting Actor nomination for Leslie Odom Jr. and the Best Original Song nomination for the end credit song Speak Now, and uh, is partially based on a vague true story, in as much as um, um, after the big fight between Sonny Lister and Muhammad Ali, which Ali won and became the champion of the world, he had a, a sort of big celebratory party at his hotel room, along with Malcolm X, uh, and Sam Cooke, and, of course, Jim Brown. So the four of them did convene at a hotel room after this big fight. They were all in attendance of the fight in t- for this one night in Miami, as it were. Um, but we, the details are very much, like, sort of elaborated on by Kemp Powers from his original play. And it's just an interesting thing, though, just to consider the fact that if you found out that piece of information, there's so much that can be extrapolated about, like, what did they talk about? What was that evening like? These four incredibly great cultural figures, especially for black men, who meant so much to the culture at that time and had ripple effects to this day. What was their, like, meeting like? What was their conversation like at that point? And I think this movie does a really great job of kind of extrapolating that. But Adam, you hadn't seen it before. Uh, What did you think of One Night in Miami? Uh, I fucking loved it. I gotta be honest, at first, when it first started, I wasn't sure. Because I always have a hard time with biopics even though this isn't technically a biopic but i for some reason have always had a hard time separating the actor from the actual person and i was a little bit worried that was going to come into play here and it did in the very beginning by the time they were all introduced and the opening title card came up like i was completely on board um i think it's a it's a great movie clearly it's a it was a play i mean it's it's so obvious i mean it's the four guys in one room um, and a lot of big speeches, a lot of big things like that. But it's just a wonderful portrayal of sort of these four men who, you know, obviously African-American men at this time who are all in different stages uh, as far as their place in society and sort of how they come to terms with the power and ability that they have and whether or not they should use that, how they should use it. Uh, I, I thought it was an absolutely fantastic movie. Yeah, I think what's also interesting is just like prior to this, like Malcolm X, Cassius Clay, or Muhammad Ali, as he would later be known by the end of this movie to be called, um, Jim Brown and Sam Cooke are all figures I was aware of just as sort of like, you know, the, the weird cultural context we put, especially like a Malcolm X in of just like, oh, look, we celebrate them at Black History Month as like figures that we should like be appreciative of. But not much more than that, not really as, like, men especially. And Regina King even talked about this. The reason she kind of took this on was, like, to try and examine these people who she put up as idols to some degree and actually translate them as human beings. Which is the most interesting thing, is that, like, these four actors, which we should credit, uh, Malcolm X is played by Kingsley Benadir, Cassius Clay, who would, by the end of the story, obviously, be known as Muhammad Ali, played by Eli Gorey, um, Aldous Hodge plays Jim Brown, and Leslie Odom Jr., uh, plays Sam Cooke, and all of them, I think, do a great job of not necessarily directly imitating them. I would argue that uh, Eli is doing the most direct imitation, but at the same time, like, they all feel like just, like, actual men. They don't have, like, it's sort of these very much mortal men dealing with the context of being, like, huge, massive figures in the public spotlight from various different, you know, sort of perspectives, and them all coming together. It's just them kind of, like, butting heads in believable ways that men would do, uh, but also at the same time having a real respect for each other that still shines. There's this really complicated back and forth that works with all of them. I I will say that I think the uh, Malcolm X and Sam Cooke especially their back and forth really uh, pushes the movie more than the Cassius and Brown. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're still great. They're still important and integral to the story, but I got so wrapped up and especially in their, both of their performances. Uh, they're both wonderful as, as Malcolm X, Sam Cook, respectively, the deconstruction that they do on both of those men through their, this night and their conversation they're having and, the arguments and the punches they're sort of thrown at each other verbally. And, you know, even through their different ideologies and and things like that, they both believe in the same thing. They both really do have the same interests at heart. It's just, they go about it in such different ways and, and both at least 
before the end are so stubborn to see the good and the other ones sort of execution of those ideas or beliefs. And it's just, it's such a wonderful, like I said, sort of back and forth to see them as these two men with their flaws and their sort of putting their hearts out on their sleeves. It, it was just, it was incredible. Like it was absolutely incredible. Like, like you, I know what I know about Malcolm X through school and then obviously through the Spike Lee movie. And Sam Cooke, I know because of the music. I don't know, didn't know much about him at all. Same with Jim Brown. I knew about his, you know, sort of football career and that he became an actor. And Muhammad Ali is probably who I knew the most about, uh, just because he's, you know, Muhammad Ali. And and I grew up with, you know, family members who were really into boxing and stuff. But this movie, you know, it just it, it's such a powerful tool to. Yeah, you can still have these men and, and hold them, you know, to, to these sort of iconic historical figures and remember the sort of the power they had in their time and, and in society and things like that. But this movie also, just, like I said, does a really good job of showing, but they were just men. They were still just men with flaws and, you know, they were families and, you know, rage and sadness and depression and insecurity and it's just it's i i fucking i absolutely loved it well especially with eli gory what i like about like his portrayal of cassius clay is the fact that you forget that when he became like the heavyweight champion of the world that guy was only 22 years old and he feels like the kid of that group yeah. and in a really like especially the way that he like bounces on the beds and stuff like that or um even when he has the most concern about just like oh the ice cream what the fuck like i i it really it it's a weird thing to endure just like oh my god you have this guy who was like you know one of the the great titans of boxing you see in like all those photographs and stuff like that him just this big imposing force he was a fucking kid having the night of his life which is like i just became champion of the world and i'm gonna also have this huge transition in my life to being like a, a Muslim after this point, I like that he's dealing with that at the same time in a believable way, like a 22 year old kid would be doing, which is like, you know, initially very excited about it and then worried about it, not sure. Like, there's a lot of like complex emotions, just even going on with that guy who's playing the kid. I, I would argue probably. It's no offense to Aldous Hodge, who I love as an actor, but I would say Jim Brown is the one who has a bit more of the short shrift, even though I love his introduction with shout out to uh, Bo Bridges, who's morphing into Jeff. But <laughs> your voice and looks alone. <laughs> I think he assimilated. Great scene. I love the scene too. I love the dialogue on the porch between the two and the lemonade. He's like, "Oh, we love you here," and you know, I'll tell everybody I'm. You know, I I support Jim Brown and blah blah. And then the ultimate last line of the scene, you're like, "Oh fuck!" Yeah, like it's like a gut punch. But then I would say that the Jim Brown character doesn't really recover from there. I think he's tr- a bit more of sort of like an audience surrogate, I guess, in that he's I the guy so. who's more on the ropes. Because I think he knows between like the heavyweight champion of the world that's there and then Malcolm X and Sam Cooke, he feels a bit more on the side. He's like, I'm a football player who's going to transition to being like an actor at this point. Like, in, is at that cusp point of his career. And I think that works in as much as like he feels like the one who feels the closest to normalcy by comparison. He's kind of trying to be the voice of reason to a certain degree when things are getting really heated. Just like, hey, let's not fucking do this to each other let's kind of chill out a bit massive like vocal recording artist and a big figure in the church of islam and shit like that it's it's an interesting dynamic the four of them share but i do agree that i think he gets short shrifted just because like like you mentioned the stuff between malcolm x and sam cook is so good particularly the big conversation they have in the hotel room about like oh you're just recording these like lovey-dovey bullshit songs sam cook you can't like actually write a song that speaks to our experiences and meanwhile he's like look i run a record label and i hire a bunch of you know black artists to write songs that white people cover but who gets the money us black folk who actually did the creative work there's a really interesting back and forth to where no one's absolutely wrong or right I think it shows just a way of, like, all these people are trying to progress in this world that constantly is, like, trying to make sure they're not at all, you know, these figures that they are at this point. Like, a a constant worry about, like, oh, am I going to get, like, destroyed to some degree? Which especially hits knowing the fact that by a year after the point where this movie takes place, Sam Cooke and Malcolm X are dead. It's really, like, sobering by the time you get to, like, that ending quote and everything else. to just realize, like, oh, yeah, both these guys aren't going to make it that much longer after these events. And it's it's just this really interesting thing where you see these guys as humans only to realize, oh, within a very short amount of time, they're 
lives get snuffed out so tragically and too early. Yeah, like you said, it, it's just very sobering. And you go into this knowing that Malcolm X was assassinated, that Sam Cooke died and all these things. But it just, like you said, this movie just sheds so much more light on potentially who they were as men. Like, like you said, we don't know the lengths of this conversation. If there even was this lengthy of a conversation between these four men, we have no idea. But this movie it really does a really, really good job of showing like, this could be what they were like, like it potentially, like it sort of fills in, you know, the blanks a little bit. And, and I just, like I said, I ultimately love it for that. It's not a typical biopic whatsoever. Uh, it, it's these four figures that, you know, and it's one night of them together, just flaws and jokes and laughing and crying and being uncertain of themselves. And it, it's in one contained location. It's just such an expert way of telling the story. And, you know, to get onto our woman of the hour, Regina King handles it with a lot of finesse. Like she's right up in the faces with the camera. She's, she's gives everybody a room to breathe. Even in this one little room, everybody's got maybe not equal time. Like we said with the Jim Brown thing, but I don't, I think you might be on somewhere. He's more the audience surrogate. It's just, it's handled really, really expertly. Yeah. You can tell that like, she's very much like, um, an actor's director, obviously, where she's getting these great performances out of these guys through that kind of collaboration. She says as much of like the big reason she wanted to direct is just to help out other actors while at the same time accruing at least enough of the stuff from like her TV experience and also their stuff to like be solidly technically proficient and even have like some really great like looking scenes. Like particularly, I love the scene where um, Cassius Clay and uh, Malcolm X are doing the, the prayer in the hotel room. And the way that, like, it's all framed, it's very respectful, it's very, like, you can see the passions there, but also some of the human foibles, like the way Cassius Clay initially does the other hand, as opposed to, like, no, you're supposed to do it this way, or how they cut in between, like, Lance Reddick and the other bodyguard guy outside, and how it shows, like, oh, one of them is, like, taking a shift in front of the door while the other one is praying, because they don't have the time to, since they're 100%, like, trying to guard both these guys. Like, there's a lot of, like, great character detail that you see filled in from her just doing these very simple, like, sort of pans from, one from like, the wall of the hotel to the other wall, or from the door to the, like, railing. It's, like, very simple, but it's very effective in giving you a lot more about these characters. Yeah, 100%. Like, you feel like you're in the room with them, too. Like, it's just, oh, man, I expected this to be good. Like, I, I went into it, th- you know, thinking, oh, th- I'm going to really like this. There's so much emotional weight to this movie, too. And it definitely made me want to sort of do a little bit more research into these gentlemen and, like, even watch 100 Rifles, which is the movie Jim Brown's going to make um, or did make. It, it's just there's so much here that now I want to fill in even more blanks because of this movie and this story. Yeah, particularly, I mean, the finale of this movie being Sam Cooke unveiling a change going to come while they have, like, all these shots of all the other guys and they're, like, the final glimpses we see of the other three men while he's doing that on The Tonight Show. It's, one, a stellar turn from Leslie Odom Jr. Where, like, I think somebody like Kingsley Benadire, I think, also deserves some Oscar attention, but you can see why Leslie Odom Jr. was nominated for just, like, that finale sequence alone, especially the fact that he's not exactly duplicating the performance of like a Sam Cooke, but he's really imbibing that spirit. And I love A Change Gonna Come. It's probably my favorite Sam Cooke song. And he does such an incredible job of embodying so much of what you like have heard in recordings of Sam Cooke doing that, not just vocalizing, but also like with the body language, just showing off like somebody with that powerful voice and what he does to kind of like tune himself into singing that particular way. It's astonishing. It's a great way to end this movie. Yeah, it's fantastic, man. And the fact that it ends with a single tear and not a single audience reaction to, you know, it's, it's so poignant and sad, but at the same time, it's like, you're just so glad that, I don't know, I got, again, we're two, no spoiler, we're two white guys talking about this. I know you're all shocked. You're all very shocked by that reveal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, everybody. You can't comprehend as a fucking, you know, normal white dude who grew up in the 80s or 90s what a moment like that potentially meant to people. And it's just, it's just, it's so powerful. It's so great. You get at least like the emotional heft and honesty out of these guys who you've grown to 
you know, really like over the course of this movie, only to see, like I said, them going their disparate ways and realizing just the sad truth of them, like, two of them aren't going to be around after a year after this point, and Muhammad Ali's eventually going to die in 2016, Jim Brown's the only one left. He's said as much based on this movie that, like, it's not the exact details, but the spirit of that, the conversation they actually had between the four of them is really there in the play and in the movie and all this other stuff. And I think that's really what it should be going for, if nothing else, with an event that's so vague as this. And what I would prefer, honestly, out of, like, historical movies that are, like, directly depicting real figures we know, I would rather this than a biopic, because most of the time, with the exception, you know, of something like a Malcolm X, actually, ironically, it's one of the few examples of somebody taking, like, the life of a figure like that and doing it over the course of, like, a, that in that case, like, a three-hour-long movie. Like, most of the time when people do it, it ends up being kind of lame. I'm going to probably reference one of those in a reduce segment in a bit. Um, but w- I pr- so vastly prefer just having an isolated particular point in history to see these characters. It doesn't have to be, like, one night, necessarily. But in this case, a one night of these four figures going back and forth with each other, talking about their experiences and their, you know, sort of issues with the spotlight, but their own humanity and so many of the flaws that they have as people. I think it does such a great job of elaborating on all that. And I want to see Regina King do more stuff. Hopefully she can be, you know, a bit more, you know, uh, directorially ambitious um, and be able to, like, show off a lot more flair um, and something else. But for this movie that's based on a play, she does a stunning job of depicting like these events and translating it to the screen. Uh, quite well. And I'll just say those are my final thoughts. And do you have anything to add for final thoughts? Uh, no, I pretty much uh, echo everything you just said. I, I, I'd much prefer if we got more character piece like biopics. And, and that's ex- exactly what this is. It, it's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. And yeah, I would love to see Regina King maybe get another chance to direct something else. I, I'm very fascinated by and curious about what she could potentially offer because i think this is a stellar first outing well now adam it's time that we do our segment that we've teased a bit on the show we're doing the double redo where every week adam and i have a total of four movies that we uh, want to talk about related to the topic just briefly mention two to recommend and two to not recommend so basically our recommendation for the best possible double feature related to the topic and then the worst possible um so you have your titles adam go ahead and start off with uh, your double redo titles Alrighty, for the good, uh, I have Watchmen, the HBO series. Uh, we've actually discussed it on the Patreon before, but I just think it's a wonderful, wonderful series. Uh, she's, you know, basically the lead that we follow, and she's wonderful in it, Regina King. It just gives so much more life to the source material and also changes a couple things that really make it more poignant. Um, I, I just absolutely loved it. I, from beginning to end, I was floored by that series. If you have not seen it, honestly, you really should. I, it's just absolutely, absolutely fantastic uh, television. Um, and then she does play this a wife character, but I think she's really good in it. And it's also, uh, I just think, a really good as sort of spy thriller espionage movie. It's the uh, Will Smith, Gene Hackman, Enemy of the State. She's got a bit role in it. But she's she's really carrying it, and she's really good in it. Um, and it's also just full of other great cameos and uh, performances. A great, great movie. And then really briefly for my bad, because I don't have much to say about them. Uh, my first one is Legally Blonde 2. That's probably pretty much all I got to say. <laughs> it's... Uh, I, I just I hate those movies, and and this one is just it's even worse than the first one. Not for nothing, like Reese Witherspoon is definitely trying, uh, Regina King's definitely trying in her part. It, it's just it's a terrible, terrible film. And then I have also another sequel, Planes, Fire and Rescue. Everybody remember Planes when Disney was like, oh, cars worked, so let's make planes. But instead of Owen Wilson, let's get Dane Cook to be the head. And the sequel is. Uh, you know, just as bad. Huge voice cast, Dane Cook, Ed Harris, Regina King, a lot of big stars, but it is just horrible. There's no heart to it, even less heart than I feel Cars has. And it's just a bore fest from beginning to end. I've tried to watch this with my daughter just because I wanted to watch something new with her and she couldn't even get through it. And that's saying something of a six-year-old can't watch a movie about planes that have, you know, are alive and fly around and get into zany, exciting things. And it says a lot for your movie. And she just sounds kind of bored in it. Uh, much like everyone else uh, talk about Ed Harris from last week. Uh, here's another very bored performance from him. Uh, it's, it's just 
uh, terrible. And there's way too many of these movies. Uh, well, I've only seen Watchmen. As you mentioned, we discussed it on the Patreon, the first ever Patreon uh, big discussion that we had on the show. Uh, just for $1, you can go into the archives and get that plug. Uh, and I agree with you, though. It's a great, especially sort of like sequel to the original novel and not so much the uh, the Zack Snyder film. I think they do a great job of kind of sequelizing that in their own way. Um, I haven't seen the other three. Um, Enemy of the State is one of those Tony Scott ones I do want to like check off the list at some point. Um, and, you know, I haven't seen Legally Blonde 2. I like the first Legally Blonde. I think that one's like a fun sort of like comedy that really emphasizes on like Witherspoon as like a fun comedic presence but I wasn't too interested in seeing a sequel I don't know how much you could really do with you know following that up of a really solid original movie and clearly that's also my issue with Planes I'm such a big fan of the original Planes and I can't believe they would bastardize it with a sequel like this A Fire and Rescue I'm sure it completely besmirches the masterful work of the first Planes which I have not seen yeah, I mean, what a travesty. I can't believe they ruined planes. Honestly, my favorite <sighs> detail about that is that those movies aren't made by Pixar, but because it's tangentially part of the Cars universe of sorts, they were made by, like, it's Disney Toon Studios, who did, like, their TV stuff. And it was just like, oh, we're going to put out in theaters. And it's just like, oh, this is some bullshit Pixar stuff, the worst Pixar movies. And it's like, no, uh, even though it's tangentially related to the worst of the Pixar franchises, obviously. Um, with the the cars as, as it were though cars if we ever do another pixar episode adam that is such a fascinating universe of questions of just like what the fuck how how does this work how, how did these cars become <laughs> how does this happen put a, we'll put a pin in that at some point we will dive into the cars averse but uh, my choices here and uh i'll say uh the two uh one of these is pretty obvious for my good um, it's the movie that she won her Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for, If Beale Street Could Talk, a phenomenal movie, the follow-up for Barry Jenkins from an already great movie we talked about on the show previously, Moonlight. But If Beale Street Can Talk, if you're unaware, basically it's uh, this movie that's about uh, these two um, young lovers who are separated because the male in the relationship has been put behind bars for a crime he didn't commit, and the movie's basically about his girlfriend, who is also pregnant, as it's revealed at the beginning of the movie. She's pregnant with his child. Um, her and her family's attempts to get him out of prison, and Regina King plays her mother, and is so phenomenal. Particularly, there's an early sequence where um, the the main female lead reveals that she's pregnant to the parents of her boyfriend, and they get so upset. It's just like, I can't believe that you would carry a bastard child. How dare you do such a thing? And Regina King just immediately is like, look, that is your grandchild, too. I'm going to protect this kid. I would hope you would try and help us out, especially with trying to get your son out of prison. That's the main reason we're all here. And you, you're not going to, like degrade my daughter like this and that's immediately a scene which is like oh my god she could have just won the oscar for that scene alone but the whole movie is such a great showcase for what we talked about earlier about like that conviction that regina king has and how that's really matured but at the same time there's a real vulnerability about just like look i just want the best for my daughter and my grandkid who's upcoming i just i really want this man to be out especially for like you know it's a person that she wasn't huge on necessarily she likes that guy you know she's just doing this mainly because she loves her daughter and her you know, wants her grandkid to have that father, and it's such an astonishing performance. I get why she won Best Supporting Actress for it. Great work from her. Um, and then the other good one I have is uh, one from just a couple months ago, actually, in 2021 on Netflix, uh, The Harder They Fall, which is a Western that has um, a total black cast, and uh, Regina King plays the girlfriend of the main villain, played by Idris Elba, and it's basically about like a bunch of outlaws who are trying to um, fight this guy, who is uh, the Idris Elba character, who's this mean son of a bitch, who, like, his prison cell is a safe that the Regina King has to bust him out of. It's a great stylish Western that has, uh, it's a phenomenal turn from uh, the director is a musician originally, and such a stunning directorial debut. It has some of these aesthetics of like a music video, but at the same time, it's just this great stylized Western that kind of feels in the vibe of like the quick and the dead. But in this case, it's applying it to like, oh, these actual, like all the characters in it are actual real life black cowboy figures but are just put in this like very silly, zany kind of Western that does such a great job of kind of remythologizing the West to include black cowboys, which were a real thing, but just doesn't acknowledge that much. And it's a great way of taking 
that kind of, you know, silly stylized Western that white people have dominated for so long and actually having one of the few examples of like, no, it's like, it's an all, like there's the white people that are in here are very few and far between. It's, it's such a great showcase for a huge, massive cast. Like Keith Stanfield's also there. Jonathan Majors, uh, so many great people in it. I would firmly recommend it. Uh, it's a play on Netflix right now. It's, it's one of, you know, many Netflix movies that kind of got swept under the rug after it came out. It was such a cool trailer when it premiered and then nobody really talked about it after the movie came out. But I, I think it's a unfairly swept under the rug. Um, but then the two bad, um, the one I have here very briefly is Daddy Daycare, which I'm sure most of you don't remember Regina King was even in this movie. I didn't until I thought back to this movie while searching like, hmm, what could I put as a bad choice? Oh yeah, she was Eddie Murphy's wife in this movie. The premise of the movie is he gets fired from his big cushy Wall Street job, so he has to try and get a new sort of business and he decides to start a daycare for the neighborhood and it's the whole thing like oh my god he's a business type who's trying to get used to being around kids all the time how silly how can a man be around so many kids and take care of them it's so silly and it's it's a very bad movie it's one of many bad family movies for Eddie Murphy and Regina King is just his wife who's just like hey I'm gonna get my job back so we can you know I can be the breadwinner now uh why don't you stay at home with the kids and other people's kids as you take care of them for the daycare it's a real waste of Regina King clearly but another movie that I think um, was one that she got a bit more of like sort of interest from like the higher critical esteem because this was an Oscar nominated movie, a Oscar winning movie, in fact, as well. And it's one that um, I didn't like at the time. I rewatched for the first time since its Oscar season, and I still really don't like it. It's Ray. The Ray Charles movie, Jamie Foxx won his Oscar for. Not a bad performance from him or like a Regina King who plays the one of his backup singers who he ends up having an affair with and ends up having a child with. Um, it's another example where like Regina King's there and she's kind of like, you know, her typical Regina King self doing as best as she can. But she's kind of like put into the background like so many other characters revolving around Ray Charles' life in this movie. Because it has to be like the typical stupid musical biopic structure. Of like, oh, we have him making it and him, like, you know, people doubting him, but then realizing, like, oh, he's actually such a great and powerful musician. And all at the same time, like, him dealing with the family trauma of what happened in his past with these, like, very heavy handed flashbacks. Also, so this is the kind of movie that, like, the moment Walk Hard came out, it completely made these movies irrelevant. And, like, Ray, I would say even more so than Walk the Line, which that movie is also obviously being a parody of. Like, Ray is so much more of, like, the schmaltzier example. Walk the Line has at least a couple of, like, really great performances, as opposed to Ray only has Jamie Foxx, and even then, it's Jamie Foxx doing very good impression, I would argue. It's not so much a great performance for me. Um, but I'm not a huge fan of Ray. I think it feels very of its time and dated and uh, like very typical bad Oscar bait. I haven't seen if Bill Street could talk yet. Uh, that's definitely what I want to. It's just I'm going to have to get myself in the right headspace for it. Harder They Fall, I did see it. Uh, I've only seen it the one time. I I, I like it. It's it's definitely one I got to rewatch again because there was a lot going on the time I watched it. Plus, it, it's just it's a it's a it's a strange movie. Like it, it really is the way it shot this, the uh, especially the soundtrack. It's a little, it's different. It's different than what I was expecting it to be, but I remember really liking her in it. I thought she was great. Actually, everybody in it is really good. And as far as your bad goes, I, I don't like Ray either. I never really cared about Ray. I, and yes, it is Jamie Foxx doing just an, a really good impression. That's exactly what it seems like. And it's just so overbloated and just overtly schmaltzy in parts. And it just, I don't care. I do not care. Not that I don't care about Ray Charles or his music or anything like that. I just don't care about this movie. And, um, yeah, Daddy Daycare, I mean, come on, fuck off. Fuck off. Honestly, the best part of Ray, I should say, is the bit where him and, of all people, Warwick Davis, like, get high together. Yeah. And they're both just, like, really palling around, like, I want that stoner comedy. Just <laughs> Jamie Foxx and Warwick Davis fucking around. That sounds like a movie to me. Not so much Ray. But those are our choices, so let's go ahead and uh, repeat them real quick. Adam, first, uh, go ahead and repeat your titles for anybody who might have missed them. For my good choices, I had the Watchmen series and Enemy of the State. And my bad, I had the Legally Blonde 2, Red, White, and Blonde, and Planes, Fire, and Rescue. And then uh, my two good were If Beale Street Could Talk and The Harder They Fall. And my bad were Daddy Daycare and Ray. 
And now we're ahead toward the end of the show, though. Stay tuned for the very end, where we'll be doing our picking for next week, so you'll find out which titles we'll be covering. Uh, But first, I want to thank some people like Chris Oliver for doing the intro and outro for our show. Listen to more of his music at uh, chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Uh, You can follow him at Night of Water, that's night with a K, underscore of, underscore water, uh, for more of his great stuff. Um, And we also want to thank, of course, our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash gedbpod. Where for a $1 a month, you get to uh, listen to bonus podcasts with you. Like we mentioned, we talked about Watchmen was the first one we did. We've done so much other, like hours of uh, content you can listen to, including around the time this is up. Um, we would have recently released our uh, top 10 musical scores in films. Uh, that would be, uh, you know, another great thing you could listen to on there. Uh, but also you get to vote for topics we do and individual choices we do, uh, and uh, you have a chance this week that uh, this episode's popping up. You'll be able to vote for uh, two of Adam's good choices for, I guess, a bit of history for you talk film society folks. Um, every year, we do something called a redemption episode, where given the nature of our show, where each of us has two good and two bad choices, that so we end up you know choosing one of them for the individual episode of each. Uh, we have some movies that aren't covered on the show. Uh, we look back into the archives episode, you know, for the other alt picks that we had, and uh, give them a chance at redemption. And you all get to vote between Adam's two choices. Uh, Adam, what are your two choices? My two choices are uh, the alternates from our movies about music or musicians, and also our very, I believe, our first martial arts episode. Uh, I have Ipman and Whiplash. Very interesting. Very interesting films. Um, I have seen Whiplash. I love that one, but I have not seen Ipman, actually. So, I mean, either one. It's a lot to discuss about. Uh, but just so you know, everybody, Ipman would be exposing me to a new film I haven't seen. But whichever wins, we win. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Uh, we also uh, want to encourage you um, to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod and to submit feedback to us over on our email, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. For more of my antics, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I also do some writing over at both MarianiThomas.wordpress.com, my blog, and at Film-Cred.com, where I'm a staff writer. And you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Atom or Adam, that's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M, and on Letterbox at Schwanson, that's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. And uh, for more of our audio, please subscribe to us here at Double Edge Double Bill on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, uh, why not listen to all the other great shows that are on the network? And uh, you can also dig into our archives on our Podbean main feed for a bunch of episodes we did before we joined Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't support us on the Patreon, the completely free way to help us is to rate, review, or simply share the show around because that gives us more visibility out there. Yeah, and you know, Christian, I'll leave you leave you alone on this one, buddy. But I I, I got to keep you know balance. So uh, go fuck yourself, Rafe. All, all these things are such inside jokes for all of you. I, I love a new <laughs> listener hearing just like, oh my god, who are these Christian guys? All these poor bastards. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, well, now Adam, before we get out of here, it's time we did our picking for next week. Because uh, every week, as I mentioned, Adam and I have, uh, you know, too good or too bad. We switch up on the quality for that. Choices we come up with. And uh, we usually choose a number between 1 and 10 for uh, certain choices where the other person will have uh, the two choices. And the other one will say, uh, you know, I'm going to pick number 5 or whatever. And whatever that's closest to between the two films that have the numbers assigned will get us uh, the good and bad feature. Uh, Though keep in mind a few things. One, um, one of the choices for this particular episode we're going to be doing is a Patreon pick. Uh, So that one's already set in stone, and we can't necessarily pick or do anything, including use the Godfather rule, which Adam and I have, uh, where basically uh, last maybe we were given a veto to use, where uh, this veto... Uh, would be able to be used on if we hear one person's choice and we said, like, you know, I don't want to cover that particular one. Actually, I'll take the cannoli, is what we say. And then after that point, we have to go with whatever other unsaid choice is available. Um, Adam's already used his, but I have mine available. I could use mine on whatever his good choices are. But uh, we can't do anything, obviously, with the bad pick, which not only does Adam 
not have the ability to veto that. But also, uh, it was chosen by our patrons, and that's exempt from any kind of vetoing whatsoever. The Patreon folks voted for it. Uh, for our bad for the upcoming in honor of Valentine's Day, we're covering historical romances. So, uh, you, you know, some uh, older sort of like costume drama romances of sorts we're covering for the show. And uh, the patrons end up choosing between my two bad choices getting us to Tulip Fever, the uh, Christoph Waltz uh, and Alicia Vikander and I believe Dane DeHaan starring vehicle. It takes place in the 17th century in the Netherlands. It's about like a tawdry affair between a woman and the uh, painter who is painting her portrait or whatever. It's apparently quite bad, and we'll be covering that. Aren't you excited, Adam? Yeah, man. Can't wait to watch a Dane DeHaan movie. It's always my favorite. <laughs> well, Adam, you uh, have two good picks I have to choose between. So for your two good picks, I'm going to pick number six. All right. At number seven, I had, yeah, Casey, Casey. No, uh, I had uh, Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility with uh, Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson. And, uh, you know, it just it's a really good movie. Yeah, uh, not vetoing that, because that's the ultimate, like, oh, it's the mid-90s and it's a bunch of great British actors being charming? Why would I say no to that? Yeah, Hell for yeah. sure. All for it. But what's the other choice? At number one, I had the Michelle Pfeiffer, Daniel Day-Lewis, Age of Innocence. An underrated Scorsese film. One people yeah, don't give him enough credit for. Yeah. Great movie. All right, though, so Tulip Fever and Sense and Sensibility. Two films... That we'll be discussing next time uh, for all of you lovers out there in our uh, historical romance episode. Uh, but until next time, everybody, anyone up for ice cream that's not just vanilla? Believe me, I'm going to get a lot more flavors than just vanilla. I don't like vanilla. Good, we're in agreement on something. Finally, for once. Finally, we're in Hey, agreement. how about that? Hey.